Hello and welcome to the ANA Marketing Futures Podcast. Proud member of the ANA Podcast Network. I'm your host, Mike Berberich. Personalization in marketing is nothing new. Since the dawn of the internet, brands have been able to customize messaging to specific groups or even individuals. However, we haven't always used this engagement superpower for good. Many brands have been guilty of getting a little too personal and creeping out their customers in the process. But today's guest says there's a bright future for personalization as a cornerstone to modern marketing. Mike Barclay of Mo Engage joined the pod to discuss the highs and lows of personalization and what brands born before the internet can do to get in on the personalization game. All right, ladies and gentlemen, uh, we have, man, this is the first Marketing Futures podcast that's a double Mike B episode, and I can only say that I am super optimistic and super excited for this. Um, Mike Barclay, uh, welcome, welcome, welcome to the podcast virtual studio. Thank you so much for coming today. Thank you very much, Mike. I'm glad to be here. So we're about to take a deep dive through the history of personalization and take a look at its future. But before we begin, let's set a baseline. Let's let the listeners know who we're talking to today. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and how your journey led for you to becoming the Director of European Sales and Operations at Mo Engage? Of course. Let me talk to you about that. Essentially, I kind of started out my real marketing career working for the Yellow Pages business. So I worked for a business called Yell.com, which owned all the American Yellow Pages business as well. So we were like a big organization, like 8,000 people. And my first job was literally knocking doors, old-fashioned shoe leather, and selling ads for like 400 pounds to, you know, little mom and pop businesses. And then over a period of time, sort of, you know, got, got into it, uh, got promoted, and ended up running the national accounts division. So I was head director for national accounts. And so we had a 65 million pound target. And we're just dealing with the top 300 businesses in Europe, in Europe. And it was a great ride, right? You know, a long time in corporates, you know, learned a lot of things, got a good training, you know, got paid well, you know, really well looked after, but got to that point where there was an opportunity to take a bit of money, mm-hmm. which is always mm-hmm. nice, yeah, yeah. and to take a bit of time out, right? So, you know, I took a couple of years out and uh, started figuring out, well, you know what, you are too young to just do this, right? You need to figure out what your 2.0 is going to be. And it was obvious then, you know, one of the reasons for leaving was that you could see how digital has exploded, right? You know, it gone from the people use Google a little bit to, you know, you just ask Google everything and everything that came up came behind that. So industries were changing, a state agency or real estate, as you call it, that all went online. Travel agents all went online. So it wasn't a hard decision to say, well, you've got to do something in tech. Right. Yeah, the writing was kind of on the <laughs> That wasn't that that didn't require too much now. <laughs> but then you start thinking, so okay, so where do I fit? So what are digital martech businesses doing? They're essentially doing what we're doing before. They're trying to help brands reach their consumers with the right message and put them together well. And they're doing it in a more targeted way than broadcast advertising. So that was like, okay, well, I get that. I understand how all that works. I've done that. That's my, that's meat and drink to me. It's in my wheelhouse. And then I start thinking about well, what about these smaller companies, agile ones? What, what what can I bring to them? And believe it or not, once they get to a certain size, most companies realize that they're gonna have to start dealing with all these big companies that they look to they look to disrupt, right? So you're smart, you're start your startup and you do it because you think you do it better than it's been done. And then you get some investment, you start to grow, and it comes a point that if you're gonna get that that big hundred million ARR, which is what gives you your unicorn or no valuation. You're going to have to start getting some big brands on. And then it's quite useful having someone who knows what big brands are like. 
So I thought that's a match made, and as you can see, so Mo Gauge itself, we are a award-winning customer engagement platform. Mm -hmm. We specialize in helping brands really understand their customers, right? So first-party data predominantly, but we can use other kind of data. Once we've got that data in place, we then give you a great analytics tool so you can actually shape a slice and dice and understand what that those brand behaviors are telling you. We then give you the ability to drive insights from that. And then that's where the real magic happens because we then have a suite of uh, applications within the one platform which empowers the marketer to build all the digital experiences that they want to communicate to customers. So that can be anything from you know, a basic push notification that just says hi, right? Mm. Right through to one that's got several images that, that can link you to video and all that kind of stuff. That can be an email campaign. That can be, hey, I know these are my best customers. I want to retarget them on Criteo or, or wherever they might elsewhere. And because we use this one platform, we can use that same audience all the way through and to give that consistent brand experience that consumers are demanding today because that's what they expect. Mm-hmm. Um, so that that sounds like it's end to end pretty much in the digital marketing spectrum. Is that how Mo Engage started or did it start like with one and kind of build out, build out, or did were the ambitions pretty high at the the onset? That's a great question, right? Our three founders are all virtually certified geniuses, right? You know, and um, they started out working uh, creating a platform. Where if you think about these, these guys are based out of India, and you think about the fact, if I take Bangalore, where our, where where most of our people are based, that's a city of 18 million people. That was about 11 million people just 15 years ago. That's wow. you think about that. Being wow, that's right. almost a New York City in 15 years. Absolutely, absolutely. Wild. And so most of that growth is like young people coming in, super super clever guys, super clever girls who actually want to go and work in tech, and predominantly it's a tech center, right? So these people have got a myriad of backgrounds. They're from North India, they've got different India, they've got they've, South India, they have different religions, they've got different experiences. So they want to have different things outside of work. So they started by um, providing a platform we could find out and curate these things, right? And as they did that, they realized that, you know, if we're really gonna do this properly, we've got to be able to communicate to people in a really efficient way about just the things that interest them, because otherwise we're not doing the job, right? Aha, I'm starting so to see where we're headed. There you go, right? So they went out to find, how could you push messages out through an app-based app business at scale? Now it's easy to find someone to do push. What was hard was to find someone who gave them the right kind of segmentation, personalization abilities. And being bright guys, they went back to the office, went, do you know what? There's nothing out there that's better than what we can do, so they built their own. And as they're building it, they're talking to people who they're already dealing with. And people start saying, hey, when you finish that, give me a piece. So it then became, this is going to be the new business, right? And the business model then came out of that. And once they went there, it became obvious. You know what? You need to bring, use this through, throughout the channels. If you're going to use all that digital knowledge you've got, you then need to apply it to email. You need to apply it to everything else the that does. Because again, we're talking about this consistent experience, which is going to come up, come up a lot throughout this uh, conversation. Mm, that's such a cool story. I'm glad I asked. Um, so it seems like personalization was a priority from the get-go. Because if you know you're delivering these things, they need to be absolutely to my interests, to my behaviors. Um, I, we're going to talk a lot about personalization today, but let's start with its past. So what did marketing personalization mean during its first boom period? 
I mean, it's a great question, but I think you kind of need to go a little bit before that. I think it really started with CRM, right? Mm-hmm. Think about the advent of CRM. This is going to be like, you know, late 90s, I suppose, where it really started to take off. That was when people started to think you need to look at different customers differently, right? Up until that point, it was kind of really mass. Then you start to try and group these customers and understand this how we're in relation with this group and this how we're with this group and this how with this group, right? Um, and the model works, it still does. I mean, CRMs are still hugely popular and you know, some of the biggest tech companies in the world are CRM companies. But what that focuses on is what is that customer worth to me? How much have you spent? That's what really it's based it on. And as then, then that was not unfair because the reality is how much data they have apart from what they spent. They didn't know what the guys browsed. They didn't know where else they were talking to. They just had that, right? Mm-hmm. Then tech started to help. So if you think about retail in a really obvious case, right? You know, if I go out and buy a shirt in Hugo Boss or whichever store it might be, okay? The only record that the business has got is the shirt I bought. It doesn't know why I browsed, yeah? But online, it knows I browsed 14 shirts before. It knows what size I looked at. It knows where I was looking at shoes as well. It knows what other categories are interesting, et cetera. It knows what was popped up. It knows what I dismissed. So you start to get this more, more round information, right? And so you can start to get towards personalization because you start to segment then, right? So you can understand this person likes black dresses and they like black shoes, but they like red handbags. Even if they already bought the black dress, you can see everything else. So segmentation started to come in. And so now we can start to segment and start to work better. But the age of personalization came in when people could start getting a more 360 view, right? right. So we didn't just know what you looked at when you looked at it, but we could see other things that happened. We could start seeing other areas of your behavior. We could then amalgamate other things we knew about you as an individual from CRM. We could see what's going on in other areas of the business in terms of your activity. So then you could start to truly personalize. You could realize that Michael is likely to open an email if it has an offer, whereas Mike Barclay is only interested in what's new in. And you could start doing true personalization whereby you were hitting the person with the thing that they wanted. What are you seeing now? What what has caused the change that you see in the evolution of marketing personalization? You know, it's really underpinned by data. So, you know, big data was a conversation a while ago. Um, but what was but what happened was uh, CEOs and uh, CXOs and CMOs started to realize that they need to understand more about their customers. They were gathering all this data into data lakes and all this kind of stuff, and you know, there was a time when I was when I, in tech where you started to go out to see people and they go, we need some more data. And then it comes, we've got too much data, right? We've got so much data, we're swimming in it, but we can't make any sense out of it, right? And so it was the ability to actually uh, unify that data, to then make meaningful connections within that data, and then to use that data to really inform how you gave value to the customer rather than what they spent with you, that really changed it. That was the game changer. That's when it really started to change and take off. Mm. Yeah. And I mean, it's funny. I do recall when big data came out and it's like, there were tens of millions of points of data. And then like four weeks later, it was just so, you know, it felt like big data had like three weeks in the sun before data got so immense that like calling it big was kind of an insult. (laughs) Um, 
So let's talk about that though, with the data lakes and like, get me more data. Well, you know, marketers can get a little overzealous when a new platform or technology or opportunity comes along. What are some of the missteps you've seen from brands who were trying to deliver that personalization to customers, but missed the mark? Yeah, I mean, that, there's some great ones that you see out there. I mean, again, so data is only good as the quality, as quality of the volume, but there's also what you do with it, right? And think of that AI can help and all that kind of stuff. But, you know, you kind of really need to have enough and you kind of need to know what you're trying to achieve. Mm. And so there's a famous branded uh, online site here. I'm not going to mention the, the, the brand itself, but they do themselves lots of different types of brands, right? And I was for many reasons, desperate to buy a leather biker jacket, right? They were all the rage and I wanted to really nice one. I wanted to be cool. I didn't want to look like anybody else. And I've got to look at hundreds of these things right? and a lot of them on this particular brand site. And in the end, I found a particular one that I liked, you know, it was a lovely kind of color and it looked a little bit different. I thought, this is mine. So I buy this thing, right? For the next six months, every time I log on to the internet, these guys are sending me a message saying, Hey, do you want to buy a leather biker jacket? This is the person I bought it from. Mm -hmm. Oh my God. Mike, like from <laughs> your lips to God's ears, every time advertisers, every time I purchase something and I receive an ad for the thing I just purchased that same day, I like part of me regrets purchasing it. For me, for being a marketing geek, it's like you rubes, you absolute fools. Like, yeah, so sorry. But yeah, that's definitely something that triggers me. <laughs> and I'm in the industry, right? So I know what the mess But that is just true. Anybody you talk to, right? Mm -hmm. Oh, I got my car fixed at this national car repair place. And I got my MOT. That's like the, um, the certificate you have in the UK, which says the car's roadworthy. Right, and I got right. my MOT. And they three, two weeks later sent me a thing, do I want an MOT? If anybody knows... The date of my next MOT is these guys. You know, they do, they, that's what people do, right? They use yeah. limited amount of data. They add it to a programmatic ad, and then they target people what they bought, and they just say to their pay for the people, I know you, and I'm acting like, you act, I'm acting like you're a stranger, and they're just turning people off. Yeah, and it's just, and that, it feels like that's, kind of basic x's and o's that's like having your your pipeline and maybe the prospective customers a little more valuable to these companies than somebody who's already paid the bills but you you want customer lifetime value there and i hear you on that but i can almost guarantee if you were to stop 100 people on the street 75 people those people have that with that, that conversation and they have that conversation about 95 different brands so even mm -hmm. though it seems so obvious people just ain't doing it yeah, that, that, <laughs> that actually leads me right to the next question. Um, so what are some of the universal pain points? What are some of the, regardless of vertical, that people are still really struggling with to get personalization right? We all talk about the fact that, you know, the, 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 that people are swimming in data. But when I go out and I speak to different brands, you know, any brand more than five years old and many younger than that, if you ask them, okay, if you knew this is what the landscape is like today, would you have built your business this way? Mm. And the answer is often no, right? The way they've architected their infrastructure would not be the same, right? So, you know, I started off and I got myself an email system and I built my email database and it seemed really hard to migrate that. So I left my email database over there. That's why I want to do my email marketing, right? And then I realized that, you know, I had to go online. So I started doing digital marketing online over here. You know, then I started to do really well. So I re-platformed re to this new e-commerce platform over here. And then, you know, I realized that I needed to have a big, I have a department that dealt with all of the after sales of fulfillment. So I got an ERP system which plugged in here. And my marketing guy said, but I can't find anything here. So I bought some other marketing that plugged in there. And 
Next thing you know, right? Right. Oh my goodness. There's, there's this whole myriad of places where customer data is, but there's no one place where you can find it. There's no single source of truth. And that is the big issue that everybody finds. And it can be, you could be, you know, even app-based businesses that, we've, that have only started in the last few years. And if you imagine if someone like, I don't know, Best Buy or, you know, someone like, you know, Harris over here that's got 150 years. Can you imagine what their data set's like? You know, it's really funny. I'm not going to mention any names company-wise, but uh, one of my friends who works in the data business was working with a massive brand, a family of brand brands, like mm -hmm. massive. And they're looking for the customer list and it's like, that's here. It's here somewhere. It's, we got it <laughs> on a spreadsheet. Mike, they lost it. They lost the spreadsheet. And I'm, you, oh. if I said the name of the company, your the top of your head would just pop off. Like it is crazy how data, and again, you're like a Segway machine because I was just about to ask this companies, <laughs> companies who like, you know, would you have built it this way when it was formed? It's like, well, it was formed in 1920. So probably not. Ooh. These 20th century legacy brands, they're looking at this. They know they need to get to personalization, mm -hmm. but they know that reinventing their business model is going to get them updating their resume sooner than later. What do you do? What do you do when you're in that situation? You know, I mean, that, that, that really is a sort of $64 million question, right? You know, what do you do? You know, and again, it's, this time it's a technology solution. Yeah. I mean, mm -hmm. the classic thing is like, so you've got your email people and your email people email some guy. So some, some person, they purchased this item, right? And the item then is out of stock. And so the digital marketers don't know this. So they're running some kind of programmatic. They think, oh, this person browsed that. So we're going to send them an ad. So you get an advert for the item that you purchased, which you've been told out of stock, which they now want to advertise to you at 10, 10 pounds off. That happens all the time. So, you know, they, they realize they've got to try and amalgamate these things together, but it's not easy to do, right? So right. we kind of recognize that often those silos are there for a reason. And even if it's not a good reason, you can't really unpick that right now. So you need to find a technology partner who's able to pull all those things in together for you, mm. do it in a really simple way, whether it's kind of using APIs, whether it's bulk uploads, whatever way they're doing from a technical execution perspective, then give you that single view of the customer. And then be able to work with that and start having all the other data about, you know, a number of purchases, all this kind of thing. So when the marketer comes and they're building, they're building this campaign, whether it's email or whatever, they say, exclude anybody who's purchased one of these items in the last 10 days or exclude anybody who's, who says they, they only have size 10 because that's one size we've not got, right? So you can start using your technology to make sure that by putting it all in one place, that it's really working, but you're not asking fulfillment to change. You're not mm -hmm. asking digital to change. You're using technology to enable the business to do what it wants to do. That's, that's great. So it's almost like you're outsourcing a fresh start. You know, while you get your house in order, you can at least get that crucial singular view of the customer and, and just just on that point michael but this is in reality you know for the, your larger companies they can't re-engineer if you think mm -hmm. about how big companies grow often it's through this organic growth is acquisition right right so even if you get your main business all all in line the minute you buy someone else how do you integrate all that right so it's an yeah. ongoing process right so mm -hmm. it's always going to be it's always going to be there so you're still always going to have to find some way that you can actually pull things together, you know, from diverse places to do what you want to do properly. So 
we've been talking about personalization from the marketer's perspective, which obviously to our listenership, pretty relevant subject. Mm -hmm. But I think the most important folks who we need to hear from are the customers. Mm -hmm. And uh, Mo Engage did that recently in a study, did that very thing. And you were good enough to share uh, some findings with me. I'd like to just go over a few of them. Uh, shout out to Shalini for sending this over. Really appreciate it. Some things just popped out to me, and I'd mm -hmm. love to get your take on it. But one of the questions was, what frustrates you the most about an experience you have with a brand? And this is the number one frustration from respondents is when brands send inconsistent messages across channels. Mm -hmm. So that's 49% of customers said that they really don't like that. It's frustrating. The next followed is frequency of communication, but only 17% and irrelevant messages, 16%. In my mind, I think that represents like an evolution of even how the customer is seeing this. Because in my mind, you think, I would guess, if you just made me guess, too many ads, stuff that I don't like would be yeah. first and second on top of mind. But an inconsistent cross-channel journey, marketers, if customers can think and talk in this way, y'all better be on the way <laughs> to mastering it. Oh, um, yeah. What do you think about this? What do you think about that? I mean, it, it, it surprised me, right? I was aware. I mean, we we, we sell this stuff, right? So we've right, got right. 3X. I didn't think it'd be 3X. That's the thing. I <laughs> could see that, but like, wild. Well, you see, the thing is, the consumers are really savvy, you know. Like, um, I was reading uh, recently that pretty much if you're over 40, you are the last generation who remembers pre-digital. If, if you're under 40, you've always thought about digital. And if you're under 30, you've always thought about it, accessing it through a kind of, some kind of mobile device. And so I remember when we first started doing that, first started getting into this kind of stuff, um, people were talking about omnichannel. And omnichannel meant that um, if you searched for it on your phone, and then when you went into the into the mobile browser, it would still be in your basket. Like that was it. That was that was really clever, right? We'll let people take goods back to our main, our stores and we'll figure out where our stock is. Mm, mm. That was omnichannel, right? Right, 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 yeah. right. And and some businesses have really sort of moved on. Most businesses have moved on from that, right? But what they the people still don't quite get is that this is no longer a channel. The mobile phone is not a channel. It's like portal to everything you do. Yeah. Right. Yes. Whatever content you're creating, right? If you are creating influencer content that people are going to that's on YouTube or Instagram or whatever, it's going to be watched on one of these. If you're sending an email, it's probably going to be open on one of these. If you're sending a push notification, it's definitely going to be on one of these, right? right? So when you start thinking about it that way, that starts to help you think about what you need to do. But also consumers know that. if you, When you walk into a store, a physical store, and you see an item, you know you can, in seconds, go, well, is that a good price? What are the reviews? And while you're doing that, you might get an ad from the store next door or your favorite online store. So even in the store, even when someone's got somebody in the store, they are still getting all this data. And yes. so that's where you start to think about how do I be really consistent? Because people have got the opportunity to be in the store and on your website and someone else's website at the same time. Yeah. So consumers have got really savvy and they get it better than some marketers do. And that's only going to increase. You know, I saw a really sweet video of a guy who gave his daughter an iPad and she looked at it and she opened it, she wrote, wrote some pictures and then he gave her a magazine and she started trying to swipe the picture. Oh, man. And the poor, and, you know, and he had to take it back away from the girl. She started, he couldn't understand why she couldn't interact. What's she going to be like when she's 
18, 19 in the consumer. Mike, I have to share this story from the second podcast we ever recorded. It was on Generation Alpha. It was on the, the generation after Gen Z. And my guest actually had a child who was part of Generation Alpha. And they were moving, so they put the, the kid down. They had a DVR of Aladdin on, and they were going to go move. A little bit while the kid comes back, it's like, mommy, mommy, the TV's broken. They're like, oh my goodness. They go back into the living room, a commercial had come on. <laughs> There's a pickup truck on the screen where to Aladdin yeah. go. Understand that, marketers, like that is the future that we're all careening headlong into. But that is not to say we leave behind the things that work, which kind of moves me on to the second thing that really popped out for me in this study. Uh, on what channels do you prefer to communicate with a brand or have a brand communicate with you? Yeah, yeah. We've just been talking about how you can, you know, cross platform, you know, get an influencer on social and then a push result. So social media, 14%, obviously, that's a decent amount. Mobile channels, text, SMS, apps, 18%, a little bit more. Email, 33%. It, you know, it's so funny that... And this is always the balance that we're we're trying to hit. It's like you want to master that technology. You want to be in those new spaces, but you do want to keep your eye on the ball and pay attention to what's still working. Email mm -hmm. still, you know, on top. Absolutely. I mean, it's context, right? People thought that TV would kill the radio. Like radio is, is in very rude health, right? People thought that mm -hmm. airplanes would kill trains. Trains are in very rude health, right? People think that that digital channels will kill email, right? Email is in very rude health. Now, it's not in the health it was, right? I mean, I think maybe 10 years ago, it'd been 50%. So that is quite a steep decline. But a third, it still is the biggest channel. Yeah. So you've got to pay attention to that. You've got to pay attention to what's the context? What is it that I can serve through these channels that are more appropriate through those channels, right? You know, is it long-form content? Should I still email that? In what context am I actually talking to these people? If, if I take an app and I start using it, I expect to get my T's and C's as an email. Yes. Right? Yes. So there's lots of reasons why people still use email. That's like even marketing. So marketing still has its place with email as well. But it's about context. And as you say, it's about embracing all the channels, right? So if you wait until a channel picks up, then you lose that first move advantage. Someone in your space would have already commanded that. Equally speaking, if you abandon a channel too soon, you then miss out on some of that residual revenues. So it's about, you know, being able to work with all the channels, and that's why you want the flexibility of a platform that can adapt for you rather than you've got to keep adapting to the business. Right, right, right. You can only in-house so much, and you want to really, you know, it's brand, it's creativity, it's your vision, it's your mission. That you keep as close to the vest as possible, but yeah. if you're trying to bring in every new tactic under the sun, you're going to be chasing your tail. Totally. Um, it's purpose, right? Yes. What's your core purpose? My core purpose is I make fabulous cars. Let somebody else figure out how to market them. Yeah, exactly. Right? Exactly. On the subject of personalized communications, how do you expect the, the experience of communications with a brand to be personalized? This is from the consumers again. Chief is previous purchase history. The consumer's known interest, let me triple underscore known interest, the, the interest that they have put out through their activity and their content creation, 
but at the very least for organizations to recognize their name. Now, this is interesting because it's 26%, 23%, and 22%. So it's not like one is really running away with it. This is really, I just wanted to point this out for brands. Like, <clears throat> these are the areas you should be playing in. And like, if something doesn't fit into these buckets, it's really take a long think about whether or not you want to spit it back at the consumer. Just 100%, 100%. I mean, I think these days, the consumer, consumers, the biggest apps on the Apple planet is, is probably Facebook, right? Right. And if you look, think about the real estate, you know, people spend more time on Facebook and LinkedIn and Instagram and WhatsApp than all the other apps probably put together. Mm -hmm, That's mm -hmm. fact, right? Yeah. And people using those free products know they are the product. They know that, right? Mm -hmm. So GDPR is big over here, but the reality is people still willingly give their data to Facebook. You know, we had all these issues with uh, Cambridge Analytica and all the other conversations. People still willingly give their, their data to Facebook, to Instagram, because they want those businesses to understand them and they expect you to understand them, right? Yeah. And so it's not, it's not even as bold as to say, hey, you know, if you are a fashion retailer, find out the different elements of fashion that they like. It's that they expect you to be able to work it out. And that's why things like AI and predictive has become so powerful because they give you a really strong, either deterministic because based on actual data or probabilistic view of what else this person's interested in. You can't send me a gray jacket over and over thinking of buying more gray jackets. You've got to work out what else is my Barkley like to be interested in, and then you've got to send me that. So that's what it's about in terms of understanding what I'm into. Yeah, that's where that comes from. But I thought that was just very interesting uh, that they, yeah, there is a, a want that like, if you know I'm buying something and you could figure out what that, you know, the rest of my purchase set is, mm -hmm. you're actually doing me a favor. And, you know, it'd be great if advertising could, could get back to that or get to it. I'm not sure it ever got there. Oh, absolutely. And and you start to see like, so people like some of the big fashion, some big sports brands, you know, put Nike and people like those like, in, into that and Adidas, et cetera. They now will send you content, not just brand, not just product, content you're likely to be interested in. Mm -hmm. This guy is probably going to be interested in Super Bowl content, right? This person, because they've been looking at the Super Bowl content, might actually be interested in looking at some other piece of content, right? And that gives you that gives you an engagement. They become a place where you go to be engaged, not just to buy stuff. How powerful is that? Oh, yeah. Yes, it augments the relationship. You just, mm -hmm. you're on a whole new playing field. Great stuff. So the last one I want to touch on uh, before we move on is that we're finally, like you and I have just received vaccinations within, you know, our, our second jabs within a couple of weeks of this podcast, respectively. It, there's this light at the end of the tunnel that's finally kind of peaking. So now people are thinking about post-COVID, when mm -hmm. the restrictions go away. Um, and you asked consumers, you know, how do you expect to engage with retail brands when the restrictions, the restrictions are gone? Yeah. And, you know, people across the board, a third of respondents said they're still going to stay Their Their increase online um, isn't going anywhere. And I'm sure there will be a, a kind of surge of I just want to get out and do stuff. But once that subsides, you're looking at a split online in person or heavier on online. Um, so what do you think for like, you know, 
retail brands and brands whose lifeblood has been retail, like what are the considerations they should be making right now? Well, you know, by the way, that's just a kind of great question to sort of summarize the survey. I mean, what I would say when I'm talking to brands out there, if you're not really thinking about this stuff, you're right for disrupt disruption. You know, mm -hmm. your your competitors are thinking about this stuff. And there are brands that you speak to who are really hoping that, you know, in the post-COVID times, what we're seeing is that there are some brands are really hoping that everything's going to return to normal, you know, that high street's going to really open, open, et cetera. And some of that will happen. Some of that will prove to be true. And that hockey stick that they're going to see at first is the fact that you're going from a zero base, right? Mm -hmm. Yes. But there's so many things that's gone on for so long now that a lot of this is what I call baked in, right? That stat tells me that there's still going to be a huge amount of which I can still do online. And let me give you a slightly different example. I'm talking to restaurants, people who run restaurants. I've got some friends of restaurants who run restaurants in London. And through the COVID period, they tried to switch to do a bit of home delivery and you could like order your pack from them, they send it over, et cetera. Now I know I know a business that's setting up to continue doing that. Mm -hmm. Right. And what they're doing is they put a fix, they're fixing all the because that was a reaction, they're fixing the logistics, et cetera. So if you want to order from Hakkasan is a really, really, really good. Chinese Chinese Asian restaurant in, in, in London, right? And there are only a few of them, right? They're really exclusive. And throughout um, COVID, they were doing some home delivery. So this new business is going to have the have all the right packaging, all that kind of stuff. That they can actually have that delivery anywhere in the country because they're going to chill it and they're going to live it to you in Scotland, right? Mm -hmm. Why would you stop doing that? Yeah. Oh my goodness. So the yeah. whole thing about okay, post COVID, yes, old some of the old habits come back, but a lot of the new habits that have been formed will stay with us and is now baked in. So brands have got to really get their head around that. So if you are an exclusive restaurant that had 50 covers and normally you, so people used to wait two or three weeks to get it, right? And then you've had a year where you can't trade, yeah? And then you find out you can put another 25 customers out in the parking lot in your thing. You now got 75 covers. Why would you back off from that? Right. 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 And, <laughs> and if you're a retailer, you got to think about, okay, so we've got people buying online how am I going to do the store experience to make them want to go to the stores? And if you're an online-only business, how am I going to respond to the fact that now people have got more choice? How do I make sure they stay with me as an online-only only provider? You've got to be thinking that these things are going to change and you've got to adapt with it. You've got to run with it. I love it. Um, and I think this is one of the episodes where marketers have been taking notes the entire time. And I would encourage everybody to go back because we really are talking a, lo a lot about mindsets and tactics and strategies that you should be thinking about right now. You should be acting on if you're not. Um, but Mike, I'd like to ask you a few questions we ask of all of our guests. First, I just think this is really important to get a consensus and to hear as many smart people talk about as possible. So I'd love to get your thoughts on diversity and inclusion. That's a, good, that's a big topic, right? I mean, um, being close to my heart, obviously, throughout my life. And back when I was in the corporate, so 12, 15 years ago, it was talked about a lot. And if I look at some corporates, they've changed. Certainly the attitudes has changed, but in terms of the stats, you know, how diverse they are in terms of their, their actual employee, it hasn't changed as much as it can. So there's a long way to go on that. But in terms of from a personal experience, you know, I always thought that I understood diversity and inclusion when I was in corporate. And it's, and it's good, it's, I think it's a good example because 
Um, we then started a business in the business of transformation pro in, in a program, and we decided we want to build. This is what the office of the future would look like, right? The depart sales department of the future. How would it look? So we thought about you know how we'd use technology, and we thought about all the other things that go with it, and we also thought about how you'd recruit from that perspective. So we mm -hmm. we uh, tested various different ways. We spread out. We did a lot of research with um, different uh, recruitment agencies and scientific professors explaining how uh, your natural bias plays out, right? And we did as much as we could to eliminate that. So we ended up with this department where people would walk in and say, this does not look like a sales department for this company. Mm -hmm. And they invent it in the a best high praise, possible yeah. way, right? That's amazing. And in a two and a half year, so we had a five year payback on the project. We paid it back in 18 months. We had, we had zero voluntary leavers. Now, it'd be great to say that we'd always, we've made no mistakes recruiting. We made some mistakes recruiting, right? We were a hardcore company. Some people did not make the grade from a kind of performance perspective. So mm -hmm. we did have people leave. We had zero voluntary leavers. That was the most successful, creative, buzzy place I ever worked. And we could say, we want to do a staff night, but we're going to do it on Saturday evening. We get 95% attendance because people wanted to be together. That's incredible. Oh, I am so glad that you laid that out because a lot of people say, oh, it's, this is really tough. We go through our normal things and we don't get it. It's like a lot of stuff is tough in this business. Why is this the thing that you're crossing off the list? Cause it's tough. Yeah. yeah. It's tough. You know, okay, go, you know, I don't, I don't, I was going to say like, go make pottery, but I don't even want to, <laughs> I don't make pottery. I don't know if it's tough or not. So I don't want to yeah. discourage our, our pottery making listeners, but yeah. that is just awesome. Like do the work. Cause it pays off period. And it pays off more yeah. than even people who were like, I'll give you this window blew it out of the water. That's amazing. But Mike, even though you've been crushing questions left and right, you're not going to escape the next one. Mike Barclay. Yep. What is your favorite album of all time and why? That's an easy one. It's Massive Attack Mezzanine. Oh, I love that. I love that. It was our first Massive Attack on the uh, program, and I co-sign. I love that. Yeah, I mean, so the so Blue, Blue Line was on 1991. Bear in mind how long they've been around. They're not that prolific. But you know, the most famous trip-hop song, the most iconic one, Teardrop, is on there. And people say, oh, but, you know, it's a bit slow. And I said, you just sit down, list the album properly, you'll realize. I put my Bose headphones on. I lay back on my couch, and I'm just immersed. I, 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 call, it, I call it my music bath. I just lie there, and I'm just taken away. It's just brilliant. That's really awesome, because we get a lot of people who are like, oh, yeah, I listened to this at a very important part of my life or a transform. And I'm sure that there's like things of that, too. But just the audio, the effect that the audio has on you, I really as as a music producer myself, I really appreciate that. There are some albums where I was like, no, I need to listen to everything that's happening. Oh, yeah. Here. Everybody leave me alone for the next 45 minutes. Uh, terrific answer. Um, so let's bring it up to the present. What are you listening to now, be it an artist, a song, a podcast, a book you're reading? What content is uh, revving your engines at the moment? Well, it's interesting. So interestingly, because I'm, I get, it might be because I'm so much into tech, I still quite like old-fashioned books, right? Mm -hmm. yeah, um, yeah, I'm still and, a tactile and, book reader. 
And I've kind of, you know, sort of weaned myself off of paper into the uh, into, into using using my um, my uh, tablet, if you like, because you know I can carry a thousand books in that, right? Right, right. Um, so I'm reading um, from a sort of non-fiction perspective, uh, a guy called Blake Crouch, mm-hmm. and he writes this really off-the-wall sci-fi stuff. Which so there you go, right? I've said I'm non-tech, and I'm reading a, tech, a book about sci-fi, which is obviously yeah. tech. But that's brilliant. And the, um, from a fiction, from a, on a, on a non-fiction perspective, I'm reading this book called uh, Black Innovations, and it's got by a guy called Casey Holmes, and he talks about all the inventions have been made by black people over time, and some of them are amazing, like things like the refrigerated truck, you know, um, major contributions to how the light bulb was made, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And for me, that's really inspirational because you come back to the diversity thing. People got to know that people can contribute from all sorts of places. And that really speaks to me about diversity. Yeah. Well, yeah, because it's uncovering the 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 biases that people don't even couldn't even fathom that they had. There is an incredible I think it's a TikTok video, but it's somebody running around their house and pointing to everything that was invented <laughs> by a black person and like doorknobs and like, yeah. you know, yeah, yeah. It starts the yeah. way the video ramps up is yeah. just. It was incredible to see because it's, yeah, the things you don't know, you had a an opinion programmed into yourself about. Absolutely. I think books like that challenge that sort of that that, that preconceived bias you've got in mm-hmm. a way that's meaningful. You know, yeah. it's not like, oh, do this because it's nice. It's like, oh, right. Open your mind to like <laughs> the actual, like, like have incredible like discoveries while you're doing this, while you're becoming a more rounded, more uh, empathetic person. So I've got one short anecdote on that, which you may or not use. Let's um, go. So have you ever, do you guys have the term the real McCoy? Does that mean yes. anything to you? Yes, absolutely. All right. So a guy named McCoy in, in the 1800s, he invented, um, a. it's quite a technical thing, but it's not obviously electronic technical, but it's a self-lubricating couple for trains. And the issue with mm. trains are because they move around so much, the couplings would, would rub and then that would cause a problem. So it has to lubricate itself over long journeys, right? At that time it could get a patent because of because because he was a, because he was a he was an African American. And therefore other people copied it, right? But nobody made one as good as his. That's why when people say I want the real McCoy, that's where that saying comes from. Let's go. I <laughs> love this. We are, we're educating in every direction today. Mike, thank you so much. Before I let you go, how can folks get in touch with Mo Engage if they want to hear more, if they want to see what the platform can do? Yeah, I mean, the easiest way is just to either email me, this is mike at moengage.com, or go to our website, which is moengage.com, or you can WhatsApp me, and I can, and uh, if they, they ping you, I'll, I'll give it, they, they can get the number. Phenomenal, phenomenal. Thank you so, so much for hanging out. This has been really, really a great conversation. Yeah. Great fun, Mike. I've really enjoyed it. It's the power of Mike B. You know, yeah, it's, it's just gonna. <laughs> Thank from you so much. <laughs> yes, exactly. Thank you so much for joining the Marketing Futures Podcast. Yeah, thank you. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Marketing Futures Podcast. Have an idea for a topic or guest for a future episode? Shoot us a note at marketingfutures at ana.net. Be sure to subscribe to the Futures Podcast wherever you listen to podcasts and leave us a review. We'd love to hear from you. And as always, if you're looking to get smart on the future, point your browsers to ana.net slash futures.